I'm unapologetically fly. No wonder why, that's just my attitude. Yeah. Okay, hey, that's just my. Uh, 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 come on. Hi guys, welcome to Glitching the Code here on Iconic.com and you'll be watching this on BitChute and hopefully listen to this on Spotify and iTunes. I'm here with Raymond Zamansky. I want to say, did I say that right, Raymond? It's close. It's Shamansky. Shamansky. Like S-H-A. Yeah, I, should have, I should have asked that before we started. Raymond Shamansky. <laughs> so Raymond is the author of Alien Shades of Grey, which is a series of books, Evidence of extraterrestrial, Extraterrestrials, Visitation to the Wright Patterson Air Force Base, Swamp Gas, My Ass, ass um in america ass here if in the uk arse, yes. yeah ass and um victoria's secret truth which is a fascinating thing and hopefully we'll get into um later on and it's obviously his books have also been endorsed by the likes of nick pope um thank you for taking the time to talk to me your story is fascinating and i've been looking for people to talk about this sort of subject for a long time you were there for is it four decades you worked at wright patterson air force base and now people will be understanding that even if they don't have an understanding of ufology they'll know that name how did that come about you were you working there yeah i actually uh, my career spanned five different decades i started in january of 1973 and i retired in september of 2011 so the total time there was 38 years and nine months and i have a flag with an inscription and a plaque to prove that so um what happened is, is the University of Detroit, where I did my undergraduate work fund, uh, they had a uh, agreement with Wright-Patterson Air Force Base to supply them with so many uh, student workers. They called it cooperative education. So in uh, this would be back in the fall of 1972, we had finished our uh, sophomore year of college and uh, uni, as you guys would call it. And I watch a lot of the British uh, detective <laughs> shows here yeah. during COVID. So, you know, right. I'm up on the lingo. Well, uh, in the fall of 1972, they were looking for four uh, university students to go to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, which uh, as a uh, the highway takes you directly from the University of Detroit to Wright-Patterson, it was about mm, three and a half, four hour drive, very convenient. And the opportunity was you would work there for four months, then you would return to school for four months, come back and work. And what they were trying to do is to show you what it would be like to work at a place like Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. So from 1973 to 1975, when I graduated, I spent three, four-month work study periods at the base. And that's how I got introduced to Wright-Patterson. And when I graduated in 1975 with a Bachelor of Science in Electrical and Electronics Engineering, uh, they offered me a job. And in fact, it was one of the few job offers that I did get because it was a down economy at that time. And the uh, city of Detroit, where the university was, was still a mechanical town. That's where, you know, cars were born and raised. And they hadn't thought about putting microprocessors on the vehicles yet. So Wright Pat was a place where I could pursue my interest. And I took the job. So in uh June of 1975, I reported full-time to Wright-Patterson, and I never left. Your books are full of, it's an adventure, and that's what I like about your, your, your writing, and, and also your presentation, your style, it's full of humour, but it, you clearly are someone who enjoys life, and advent, everything's a big adventure to you. Did you have any kind of interest in ufology, aliens, anything extraterrestrial, even anything um, beyond spiritual before you even went there or is this something that never came into mind before you went there or yeah how were you before this stuff that we'll get into started to happen to you well that's a really good question um back in the early college days before i went to write pat and in my later high school days uh, i had a friend named linda missed her terribly uh, but we were good friends we had worked together at a local hamburger joint uh in in east detroit and um we would go down to the lake uh, Lake St. Clair, which was, you know, walkable. We'd ride our bikes down there and we'd sit on these grassy embankment and we'd look up and we'd try to spot the satellites because, you know, it was the space race was going on in the late 60s, early 70s. And it was like, you know, one up. Oh, there, there it goes. And then, you know, 90 minutes later, there it goes again. So there was that interest in the great cosmos. But in January of 1973, during the first week of my first cooperative education assignment, 
I was assigned to a guy by the name of Al. He was my mentor. And our two-story office building was connected to a 250-foot-long airplane hangar, which was inactive at that time. And then on the other side of that was an identical two-story office building. So we went from our building through the hangar to the place where the coffee shop was because he wanted to buy me like a welcoming gift, a candy bar. And as we stepped from the office building into this dark, really dark hangar, it had these heavy blue curtains that hadn't been used for years, spiders everywhere. And we go down this little ramp and uh, we hit the floor and he turns to me and says, have you heard about our aliens? Yeah, that was my, my response. Like, what? And I'm a co-op student from Detroit. And I, I'm hanging on every word from this guy because he's like, the middle uh, level engineer, and he's my mentor. And, uh, you know, I'm away from home for the first time. So I'm like, what? Uh, and he said, oh, yeah, back in the 40s, they, they brought a, uh, a craft here and their, he called it a machine, I think, a machine and their occupants that was crashed in the desert. And they brought him here for examination and exploitation. So, you know, you could have knocked yeah. me over with that little candy bar, right? <laughs> And so we had a conversation and I start quizzing him as we're walking the, you know, the, the 250 foot walk of fame there before we hit the next building. Uh, I asked him, I said, well, tell, tell me about this. And uh, it turns out that most of the base population was aware that Project Blue Book, which was the Air Force's official UFO investigation, had been there for over 20 years and they had only closed their door in 1969. So this is less than five years after Blue Book. And when you check the Dayton Daily News, which is a local newspaper, the big newspaper here, and you look for Project Blue Book stories, they're everywhere. And I actually had a friend who, when I was writing the first book, let me borrow his big, thick folder of clippings from the local newspaper. So the entire base was in a position to know that Wright-Patterson was involved for two decades in UFO investigations. So I think the story Al was telling me was more or less an extension of that general knowledge on the base. Do you think he was really wanted to take you over to get your chocolate bowl? Or did he really wanted to take you over to see to tell you something was there kind of it came seemed to be kind of was there another route you could have got across there or did he purposely feel like he was actually wanted to pass on some information or suss you out to see what you might know or what your reaction would be to this was there another kind of being a conspiracy theorist as i am um ulterior motive to this did it feel like you've taken me down it and you've revealed something very quickly to me about different tunnels and layers and aliens and did it feel like that he wanted to tell you this I felt it was really genuine, you know, and then in retrospect, I can see why he would want to do that. It's like, look, at, I want you to feel welcome on base and you might as well hear the story from me because I'm your mentor. I'm somebody that you're going to trust. You need to trust. And it's better than, you know, hearing it from the people whom I eventually went to seek out their counsel, like Doug in accounting. I said, hey, Doug, you know, Al, who is a good friend of Doug's, told me the story. And, you know, I was checking it out. Now, imagine, go back. I'm 19 years old. I'm away from home. Everything is new to me. And this guy lays this alien story on me. So I, I checked it out. And I guess, you know, that was just the nature of uh, being a person who eventually wound up doing research for the next 40 years. I, I was checking my, my sources. So um, I think he just wanted to share it with me. It was convenient. It was a very convenient time. We were alone so that uh, there would be no reaction. I, I wouldn't have to share it with anybody. I wouldn't have to be looking around. And he, he was kind of taking me under his wing at that point. And uh, that really did go a long way to establishing trust and opening my eyes to the topic, which stayed open for, you know, to this very day. So when you leave on that first day or the first week and he's told you this, do you see the world in a different light? Did it change your view of the world and your view of your place in the world? I had three roommates at the time because we were trying to save some money through this co-op adventure so we could pay our tuition next semester. So naturally, you know, we all had group dinners, uh, spaghetti dinners every night or whatever. And that was the topic of the conversation. It was like, man, you wouldn't believe what Al told me. Well, who's Al? And um, everyone of that four, four people uh, in that uh, apartment, we were staying at a place called 
Ivy Manor on Funderburg Road. Never forget it. And so for these guys, they were also, you know, future scientists and they were all engineers from my school. Uh, and so it was a great dinner. And we talked about it, you know, through the rest of our stay there. It most definitely made me, uh, it sensitized me to the topic. So kind of everywhere I went, I was like looking around the corners or we'd pass a vault and I'd, you know, be looking at the dial, you know, whatever it was, looking at the hinges. Hey, you know, wonder how I could get, get those hinges off or what's behind that door. So I was definitely sensitized to it. And, you know, as time went on, you, you know, you've got other focuses, you've got your education, but it never leaves you. So, yeah, I always thought about it. And as time went on, it faded. Uh, I watched the TV shows and that sort of thing. But it didn't make me at that time a fanatic. That happened in 1997. And that's when the Phoenix Lights happened. And, you know, back, well, by the time 97 happened, uh, you know, I was coaching soccer football, as you call it. I was coaching softball. Uh, so I had teams year round. And when my kids you know, got high school age, naturally, I didn't coach. They went on or when they played for the traveling teams, uh, I didn't coach them. So, you know, life moves on. And back in 97, I started to find, uh, you know, more free time. And that's when the Phoenix Lights happened. And that's when the Air Force representative, the public affairs guy from Luke Air Force Base, put out this um, series of head scratchers, like, no, we don't know what that is. Uh, and, and, and to refresh your memory and, and your audience, in 1997, this uh, two mile wide V-shaped craft came out of Prescott, Arizona and flew down all through the valley uh, over uh, Phoenix and Tucson and wound up uh, disappearing and then making its way back far west of Phoenix, uh, back towards that area. And hundreds of people saw it. Uh, Governor Fife Symington saw it. But the people at Luke Air Force Base start putting out these uh, excuses or explanations. Well, no, we don't know what it is. Oh, it was a series of uh, flare droppings by a group out of the East Coast. Uh, uh, no, that was 10 uh, F-16s flying around. It, it, it made everyone in the Air Force look stupid. And those of us who um, could get on our global access list were writing this guy at Luke Air Force Base. Shut your mouth. You're making us look dumb. And it was that thing and that time that I wind up wind up diving back in uh, to full time trying to understand this phenomena. So in 1997, when you the Phoenix Knights happened and, and you're going back into this, and there's a kind of like about a 20 year gap there between that. that what are your family and your friends thinking when you're going into this? And because as, as someone who does the conspiracy research all the time, people around you start to act differently when you do these sort of things. So what were they kind of thinking when you when dad starting to look back into these things and starting to get more involved, especially with your with your your background your your solid background working at um, Wright Patterson Air Force Base it's not like me or, or a greengrocer having a look it's someone who's got a, a solid connection there which gives it more of a standing so what you're doing people will take far more seriously what were people's reactions to you when you started to look into this again or seriously I didn't tell them okay <laughs> Because of all those reasons you just mentioned, um, I had a job where I was traveling. I uh, had a team of about 40 individuals, many of whom were PhDs. They were geographically scattered about the country. And uh, it was my job to organize them. Uh, we had contractors making deliverables to us, creating software. In fact, I have a nice, beautiful plaque, and I should have brought it down. Uh, it's work that I did with the Ministry of Defense. And uh, the test suite that we developed here in the U.S. was merged with a test suite for uh, the uh, ministry with the Ministry of Defense. And we all got together and I got a nice uh, round of kudos and a nice plaque for making that happen. So um, at that point, I just uh, did quiet inquiries and, and I contacted people like Dr. Lynn Katai, who uh, is, of course, the lady, uh, the, the medical doctor who, who did that. And eventually I got to meet her in person. But I did all of this uh, field survey and study uh, just, just quietly. Uh, I don't think anybody really knew what I was doing, even my wife and family, until my first book was published. 
Right. So that's some yeah. serious writing down in the basement, isn't it? Definitely. It was it was all under the radar. Uh, I will tell you, though, and uh, we, we will reveal this for you and the world for the first time, <clears throat> that some of the people that I discussed this with were in the intelligence community. And they were local people that I knew that we had a mutual trust. And in one case, I gave the gentleman a um, a photograph, which I could only get, I couldn't get an original of, but I got a copy of it, a very good copy of it. And I passed it to this person who was a, a member of the intelligence community. And uh, he had contacts with uh, photo analysis people in the intelligence community. And uh, he offered to uh, have it analyzed. And the um, obviously, they would love to have had the original and go through the, you know, the digital exif and all the footprints and everything of it but they said what they knew about the story and what they knew about the photograph already that they thought it was a, a valid a sighting so i was utilizing resources that i had but it was very much on the down low very much on the qt wow i mean i've had my own recent site in the last couple of years and maybe i'll get into that later and i'll briefly explain it but it was incredible um do you think that you've, you've had some, what experiences have you had? I know you had a, a men in black experience on a golf course, which I found absolutely fascinating, but you also had a, a, a kind of reptilian type um, experience as well. Were these experiences you, you had after you started to look into it again, or did they happen in between? I never had a reptilian uh, experience. Now, Victoria, uh, the, the prime subject of my second book, Victoria's Secret Truth, she had a, uh, she had encounters with several beings. Uh, uh, but uh, in fact, I, I don't recall her having anything resembling reptilian. Hers were more insectoid uh, or the grays, tall grays and short grays. Uh, I'm afraid I don't know where the reptilian. Oh, the lady I, that I'm you sorry. saw in the cat. Oh, I know which one you're talking about now. I'm sorry. I was thinking about, you know, an abduction experience. Yes. This was at the first international UFO Congress that I attended in Fountain Hills, Arizona. Yes, that one. Um, what happened there was Barbara Lamb did a presentation and uh, she is a world famous uh, hypnotic regressionist therapist. And she had put a photograph and told a story of a lady who was a hybrid and who had uh, a, uh, a resemblance to reptilians. And, you know, I sat in the audience like, whoa. And that afternoon, when we went out for lunch, I went to the casino next door and they had a restaurant in there and I grabbed a sandwich. And there were tables outdoors for people to do lunches. And there was one seat left at about a 10 person table, sat down, I unwrapped a sandwich, and I looked up. And there was the woman who Barbara Lamb had displayed her picture. So it wasn't an encounter encounter, mm -hmm. but it was, and that's why I was confused initially. That woman was six feet across the table and I looked up and I nearly fainted because the woman she was talking about was now sitting across the table from me. I never had a conversation with her. I mean, she kind of smiled and whatever, but I ate my sandwich as fast as I could. And I got out of there because I was spooked. I thought Barbara was, you know, uh, hoaxing the audience, maybe having a joke on them, uh, or maybe stretching the truth. But no, indeed, the woman she had displayed in her presentation was sitting across from me. So I bought Barbara's presentation, because, you know, it comes out three or four hours later, the hosts of the conference, you know, they produce these DVDs, you buy them for 10 bucks. And I did that because I wanted that image of that woman that Barbara had put up. Do you know when I got home, the producers of the show removed the image from her presentation. Did you ever find out why? Um, that's a great question. What happens is, is they have two cameras rolling. They have one that's on the screen for the PowerPoint presentation and one that shows the presenter and actually the third camera that shows the presenter and the image. Sure. And when they edit this out to um, make it a more entertaining kind of DVD for, for the, the uh, purchaser, they have to edit things. 
And it turns out for some unknown reason, I guess I could ask Barbara about it someday. That segment was totally edited out. That's insane, isn't it? So the only people that would know about that would be the people in the room that heard the, heard the seminar at that time. Or who had taken a photograph of it, you know, with their cell phone or for or another camera. But I know what I saw. I, I know I was there. And in fact, um, Barbara and I shared a table at one of the dinners that week. And it never dawned on me because at that point I purchased a DVD, but never watched it because I was away at the conference. It wasn't until you know months later. I actually had a need to go back. I don't know, maybe to show that to somebody. And I was like, it's gone. Yeah, it was it was really amazing. So I'm sorry I didn't remember that at the start, but you know, the the brain. I, I was thinking an actual abduction scenario, and I went, no, I, I, that didn't happen. I didn't I didn't explain it very well, but I think kind of it's the hybridness of it. So do you think let's let's go off that now? And I want to. There's so much I want to talk about. But do you think there is a hybridization um, program here? And lots of people talk about this. The abductions, the hybridization programs, huge. I know you've spoken about it on, on other podcasts that I've listened to. Do you think this is something that's going on? They're using human females usually to, to maybe shore out their DNA, do something with their own DNA. There's something going on here. I'm very convinced of it. And uh, my, my initiation into this was reading books like, um, you know, Dr. David Jacobs books or John Mack or Bud Hopkins. Uh, and everyone's familiar with Betty and Barney Hill. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of evidence there. And if you look at the guys like Hopkins and, and um, uh, Jacobs uh, and John Mack, they literally interviewed uh, and in many cases um, did hypnotic therapy with thousands of cases. And they picked the best and they wrote about them in their books. And so there is a mountain of evidence just in with the history of these great people. Or uh, I've had a chance to uh, socialize work with uh, Avon Smith and she's done a thousand people. Leo Sprinkle, Dr. Leo Sprinkle wrote the foreword for my second book, Victoria's Secret Truth. So I had a chance to talk to him. Uh, Barbara Lamb also uh, did regressions of Victoria. So I've got a chance to discuss this topic with those experts at length uh, in two of the three cases in person. So just in querying them, and you know that I ask a thousand questions. So just having dealt with them, yes, and in writing Victoria's Secret Truth, uh, I have the actual videotapes or the audio recordings of the four regressions that Victoria had with those individuals, one with Barbara, one with Yvonne, and two with Dr. Sprinkle. So based upon all of the preceding evidence that I read and and my conversations with these great people and and my hours of interviewing Victoria and going through all her stuff. There is no doubt in my mind that there is a hybridization program ongoing. All these people cannot be wrong. Do you think this is any has any connection to what David David Ike writes about with the reptilians? This kind of this thing that goes maybe way back to Mesopotamia, way, way back to Babylon. It's something that's been going on for thousands of years. And it's been known about, but kept from us. This is not a modern day phenomena at all. Uh, that's definitely within the realm of possibilities. When Giorgio Sukulis and those guys on Ancient Aliens go back into the ancient times, you know, the ancient part, the Anunnaki, my eyes roll up into the back of my head. And, and the reason is, is there's so much to investigate here in modern times, as I did, I spent a two-year um, case study with Victoria, uh, just to study and make sure that that I believe what she was saying and I could gather the evidence, that I really never had the time to roll back and go back into ancient times and try to make those connections. To me, it's just kind of like, it really doesn't matter to me. And it doesn't really matter, I don't think, in the grand scheme of humankind. I'm really concerned with the here and now. And, you know, is the United States going to beat El Salvador tonight in Columbus, Ohio, in the World Cup qualifier? You know, that's my concern. <laughs> and so, yeah, it's probably great that that 
happen. And that's why we are no longer baboons. But I definitely would think that would be a possibility that, yeah, it's rolled back, you know, from centuries. But I'm totally unconcerned with that. I'm sorry. I really no, 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 that's <laughs> fine. I think these all of these things fascinate me. It's like I'm like a little bit like you. I, I find it all like a massive adventure and it's, it's incredible all of this stuff brightens up the world what kind of attracts you to keep doing this stuff is it like a child's heart like a childlike fascination with life because not a lot of people keep that as they get older they lose that very very quickly in their early 20s mid-20s they lose that childlike wonder you seem to be getting that more more as you go as you, you go along and you look into these things and you you see these things do you think it's something that you kind of have to work on or, or keep keep going within yourself I'm a late bloomer. <laughs> so, so I, I did everything late. You know, I, I ran my first marathon. I think I was 55. I wound up running 16 marathons and two Boston's. Uh, I tried to get in to the London marathon uh, for years and they wouldn't let me in because I didn't win a lottery position. So I eventually uh, took a trip to um, uh, the, uh, I'm trying to think of where I ran. Uh, but anyway, I, I ran a race in England just to get, get that out of the way kind of thing. So I'm kind of a late bloomer and, you know, I had to put, I had to put on the backbone of my studies of this thing. And then people just keep drawing me in. They won't let me get out of this thing. Uh, people always contact me with new stories and it's the energy I get from them when they tell me a story and I might know something that corroborates their story. And that's what really makes it strong for me. Is like, they don't know all that I know because I haven't put everything that I know in my books or out in these type of interviews. And I won't do that because I want to hold things back so people won't use that to maybe brace their story up, but I can use it later to corroborate that. And then, you know, that opens another door. So uh, I'm excited about it. Uh, my one son, who's a doctor, not so much. You know, he's an ER doctor and he's in the ER every day. He doesn't have time to contemplate this. But I've got an older son and they're both electrical engineers originally. Uh, they've moved on to kind of other things. The older son is really, really into it. And he kind of juices me on and, and his wife is is really into it. So um, that kind of keeps me going, too. And I get to talk to people like you. And I'm not one of those guys who've been public for that long. So I'm just now getting to socialize with the Nick Popes of the world. I love Nick and those type of people. So that's something to look forward to. Um, I've actually been funded to go to Italy uh, to uh, give a, a talk at the uh, conference, the Children of the Stars. They paid for it all. I took my wife with me. She's like, oh, yeah, hey, <laughs> you know, this is really good stuff. I, I hate it. I, I, I don't like your alien talk, but I'm going to Milan with you <laughs> kind of thing. So that kind of keeps me energized, too. It's an adventure, isn't it? And I, I think that's great. I, I really love that. So what are these these articles before we start talking? There's two articles behind you, one from our, our famous The Sun and The Daily Mail, which are known for their um, misrepresenting the truth is probably the politest way I can put it. What are these about then? Well, I'll give you the punchline and then we'll roll backwards. I was super concerned when these rolled out. And the way it happened is, is I did a, a talk uh, for the um they were a former Los Angeles MUFON. They broke off and they created their own group. So they invited me out to do a talk. And I did. It was wonderful. And there was a photographer there who was taking pictures. He was a stringer for, for the tabloids, the UK tabloids. He took the photos. Uh, he had a conversation with me and we became friends. And he said, hey, I'm going to pass this information along. A friend of mine works for these newspapers. So I'll have him contact you and he'll do an interview. So three, four, five months go by, nothing happens. I contact Glenn. He goes, oh yeah, he's going to get around to you. A couple of weeks later, I get a call. Guy calls me from the UK, interviews me like 90 minutes, two hours. And he wasn't from any of these tabloids. He was from a, he was representing a different uh, newspaper. And lo and behold, Two, three weeks later, after he contacts me, like the Sun article comes out. And it's interesting, like it's the Sun article says, in an exclusive interview with the Sun, 
I never talked to the sun. All right. So that was their first misrepresentation. Right. Yeah. Exclusive interview with the sun, uh, you know, and I can prove that what they wrote is inaccurate because this interview was after my first book came out and all of the information, the, the topics in these articles, it was like aliens on the base, where they were buried, what the history was of Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, the, the pictures that Glenn took that were included in the article. They were all errors in fact throughout the entire thing. For example, I said that there was a burial ground, an eight grave grave site that at one time had been located caskets and all several hundred yards away and that entire place was moved next to the foreign technology division parking lot now ftd was the organization that ran project blue book so instead of saying that the eight grave burial site was adjacent to the parking lot they said it was underneath the parking lot <laughs> Oh, yeah. And it yeah. was all of these errors that were changed to make it a more interesting reality, but it was wrong. And that entire inaccuracy made its way through all three articles. So I contacted Nick Pope because I was in terror. And I said, Nick, oh, my God, here's what happened. Here's a, a, an example of it. And he sends back and he said, Raymond you've not made it as a UFO investigator until you have been misquoted in the UK tabloids. That's it. It's a mark of honor. It's like getting chucked off Facebook now as a or YouTube channel deleted as a conspiracy theorist. This is a mark of, yeah, it's a, it's a stamp of approval. They're great. And I love the fact that you've taken them as well and proudly displayed them as well behind you. I, do. And I, I have one more from the other newspaper somewhere next to my billiards table. Oh, and I okay. make sure anyone who comes over sees it. They're like, is this? <laughs> it's the UK press here. Unfortunately, it's, it's an absolute, it always has been a joke. Never more so in the last two years as well. So another thing I wanted to discuss with you while time's moving on is that a lot of these, these UFO signs seem to be around nuclear storage centers, nuclear sites. I know with the Rendlesham forest one, specifically there's a lot come out that that had a lot to do with having nuclear i want to say weapons it's probably not the right uh, what would weapons. i say, weapon would I say storage weapons? area weapon storage, weapon storage area, storage area. Mm -hmm. what is this are they monitoring that we the kids don't get hold of the mattresses and blow their tits off basically you know i i um I understand that that has happened a lot. And Rendlesham is, is a, a very good example. Here in the United States, they've been sighted over every major nuclear facility here. They've been spotted over um, nuclear production facilities. In fact, as an interesting side note to our discussion, Victoria from Victoria's Secret Truth, she grew up only five miles from an infamous, and I mean infamous, nuclear production facility just outside Cincinnati, Ohio. And I say why this is interesting is because she grew up five miles east of the Fernald nuclear production plant. Now, Fernald is infamous because it is the largest nuclear cleanup in the history of the United States. They were leaking over a million pounds of radioactive material into the water, the earth, and the air. Now, get your head around this. These are official numbers. Over a million pounds of radioactive equipment in the air, the water, and the ground. And at one point, not too long after the plant officially closed, the security cameras there caught UFOs hovering, excuse me, over that nuclear facility. And I, I positive to Victoria, and this is something that she's accepted. I posited that one of the reasons she was visited and, and UFOs were seen in her neighborhood is because of the Fernald plant. And maybe she was just 
selected because she was young and the fact that Victoria's mother worked in that nuclear plant and carried Victoria and her brother inside of her while she worked in that nuclear plant and those employees were being poisoned. So they could have passed on to the children. They could pass that nuclear. Um, her, her mother died uh, of a possibly nuclear uh, exposure cause, as did her brother. And there are some things that are, I'm not, I will not reveal them, that are known to Victoria and myself that may have impacted her as a result of that, uh, both in the neighborhood and while she was, uh, you know, uh, inside of her mother, while her mother worked at that nuclear plant. So, you know, I have a, uh, uh, that has touched me because it, it touched the subject of, of one of my books, but you are dead spot on that they have an interest in us. And it, it could be for various reasons that maybe they want to track Victoria to see what uh, kind of impact that has on her or her children. Are her children now less susceptible to space-borne radiation if they're up in a, in a spacecraft somewhere? Mm. You know, that's I've extrapolated this out as pure speculation, but that may be a possibility. It's fascinating, isn't it? I mean, do you think there's an element of, like, they seem to be nullifying from what I can tell, this, this, these chemical weapons, these nuclear weapons, sorry, almost like they're turning them off, so we can't use, they can't be used. Or, from what I can tell, there seems to be a way of them trying to disengage them or, or, or sort of turn them off, so we can't cause more damage to us. Do you think there's an element, possibly an element of them trying to fix someone who's exposed to this stuff, um, and re-engineer it, take it back, mend them? That is that is another great possibility that they're, they're saying um, maybe they're from the future and they know what's going to happen and they know that we're on this inevitable path of destruction and maybe they can't stop it or they don't want to stop it or, you know, it's already happened and they're, they've gone back in time. I know this is really far out. It's far out for me, but again, to speculate and maybe they're trying to save us or trying to do something, populate this earth with people who won't let that happen. Maybe we can change our future. Well, we, I think there's the the, the new, um, there's a, a telescope that's come out and they're trying to see the Big Bang at the moment. I'm not sure if you've heard about this. Um, I can't what it's called, it's got a name for it. And they're trying to see the Big Bang, which obviously logistically would be time travel. You would be looking distance time into the past. So that's not a log illogical to understand if you can, if you can travel straight, long distances in a quick it, fast you would be time traveling there what is your kind of take on time travel have you had any kind of information about that spoke to anyone about that for the years it, it's uh, far above my intellectual capacity you know to go wow how does that happen but if you look at the theory if you look like einsteinian theory and that sort of thing uh it definitely is theoretically possible so uh Hey, I wrote three nonfiction books about UFOs and extraterrestrials. I have an open mind. <laughs> I'm clearly open to the idea of time travel. In fact, you know, you're from Rendlesham and I uh, spent a couple of days there and, and I talk about uh, my little investigation there. And in fact, Jim Penniston wrote the endorsement. Jim Penniston of yep. Rendlesham fame wrote the endorsement for my last book, Swamp Gas My Ass. So he's uh, brilliantly displayed, uh, his endorsement is brilliantly displayed on the back cover of that book. Uh, but Jim seems to think that the uh, entities that he encountered in Reynoldsham, that triangular shaped craft, he says they were from the future. They're us from the future. And he's come out and said that. Now, how does he know? Well, maybe they told him because some of his regressions reveal that he had contact when he was there. And maybe he and Burroughs believes that they were both inside of that craft during that encounter. So maybe he was told, hey, we're here from the future. Um, you know, you're, you, it's just happenstance that you're with us now. Take this message forward and uh, don't let Burroughs uh, have, have a blow a gasket. <laughs> this was one of the things that fascinated me. I don't know which one, one of the guys it is, was the binary code and what it said when, once they kind of deciphered it decades later. Um, can you kind of extrapolate on that that story if no one's heard of it? Yeah, um, for those not familiar with the Rendlesham uh, incident, in uh, December around Christmas Day in 1980, lights were seen in the forest adjoining uh, Woodbridge uh, Air Force Base. Uh, well, 
Royal uh, Airfield or whatever they called it. And so uh, the security people went out uh, to check it out. And uh, what they discovered on one of those evenings, uh, it was uh, Jim Penniston, John Burroughs, uh, and another individual whose name escapes me for the moment. And in the process of following the lights through the forest, they found a triangular craft that was hovering or parked. It was about 10 foot on the side, about eight foot tall. And uh, Penniston was the one who was who approached it. Burroughs was apparently uh, left behind as a uh, a relay with uh, Ed Cabinsag, who was the third member there, because their devices were getting static. But Penniston touched it, and when he did, uh, what he was doing is there were these glyphs, and it appeared to be etched in this glass-like surface of this craft, and. Peniston went and he put his hand on the largest glyph, and these glyphs were something that he, he wound up drawing uh, in his little notebook, his little binder that he carried with him. So he touched it, and there was a flash of light, and that's all he remembered about the incident. But uh, after he uh, got back to the uh, uh, patrol office and he filled out his report and he noticed that the time on his watch and the clock weren't the same, he went back to the house that he was renting and he, he got out um, uh, his book and the same book that he put the drawing in of, of the uh, unit that he was observing firsthand, he wrote 16 pages of ones and zeros. Now, this is 1980. And binary code, the, the code of, of computers, was not well known in the, in the 1980s. So he wrote it and he forgot about it. And in all the drug-fueled investigations that he underwent, both on and off base by uh, organizations that he had no idea who they worked for, not once did he mention the binary code which is a miracle mm. and which leads me to believe what little I know about um, abductions that they put in a screen memory for him. They put a block in to prevent him from recalling this. Now, decades later on an anniversary, they're back in Rendlesham. He's with John Burroughs. And I believe um, Linda Moulton, how was there? They were doing a documentary. Burroughs asks Penniston casually, Hey, Remember that little notebook that you had that you did the drawing? Do you still have that notebook? So Penniston says, got it right here. John goes, John goes, do you mind if I see it? So they whip it out and uh, Burroughs is looking through and he sees the drawing that he had seen before. And then he asks Penniston, what are all these ones and zeros? Penniston says, I don't know. And Burroughs said, these look like computer code to me. And Penniston goes, I still don't know, John. So they rush it over and they meet with the production crew and they meet with Linda Moulton Howe. And they're all excited because this is the unveiling of the binary code. It literally was behind some kind of a blockage for, for decades. So they uh, quickly, I think uh, Linda, spearheaded it, uh, found an expert, and they went ahead and they did the translation of the binary code into English. And it directly translated into English. And, and I am a, um, my graduate work at Wright State University uh, in master, for the master's degree was in computer engineering. So I have programmed processors down to the binary code level. So to me, it was understandable. And when I went and I saw the, the straightforward translation, they actually show, now flipping a bit means I'm going to change it from a one to a zero or a zero to a one because the string, the eight bit string of ones and zeros doesn't translate to anything. It's not a valid code. It's not a valid string. But if you flip a bit anywhere in there, that makes it a valid character, like an alphanumeric or a yeah. control character. Flipping a bit means the transmission came across not perfectly. And maybe a one and a zero got flipped in the transmission. And now I have to flip a bit to get it to make meaning of that eight bit string. Mm -hmm. And so 
in doing the full translation to get it to, to have meaning, they only have to flip like two or three bits out of 16 pages, which is a miracle, which means the transmission that got sent from Burroughs, I meant from Penison's hand to his brain, then from his brain back to his hand and his, you know, uh, uh, visual system and writing this in the next morning uh, before he went to sleep is miraculous uh, once you learn something about binary code. So this binary code, of course, uh, not to filibuster any longer, uh, the binary code listed several places, the exact um, grid locations on, on a map uh, that said, these are special places. And uh, there was like um, uh, a, a, an imperial palace that had been hidden, hidden for decades uh, in China. There was a place in uh, Sedona, Arizona that I actually went to and I will write about someday. Uh, there uh, was, um, you know, and Sedona is known for vortexes. So there were these places. Plus it said things like, uh, you know, this is, we're from the year 8600. Uh, I can't remember the exact year. And this is exploration of, of earth in 8600. So it's fascinating. Go on the Reynoldson Forest website. Uh, and it's a fascinating thing of all the things that they saw during these couple of weekends when Penniston and Burroughs were out there and then Colonel Hall and all those other guys. It's just fascinating to see what happened. And then I, of course, got a chance to meet Burroughs and talk to him about this, meet Colonel Hall, talk to him about this, talk to Penniston about this, and then roll my experiences up into you know, my book uh, as a way of saying this stuff is important. It needs to be further investigated. It's a fascinating adventure, as I keep saying. It's um, there's so much more I want to talk about. But that that for me, I remember watching the documentary that you've just um, you've spoke about and seeing that come through. And it's, it's a great film to go and watch. I also recently watched the Bob Lazar one, which was fascinating as well. About um, I think it was Element um, One Fifteen. That was fascinating to me as well. And um, we could briefly touch on that before we kind of move on. Element 115, it seems, what do you know about that and the Bob Lazar kind of revelation of that? He didn't want to talk about it for a long time. Hold on one second. I'm going to grab something that is pertinent, okay? It's right yeah, here. Yeah, of course. Yeah, cool. I'll have a drink. I'll sing a song. My cup says, for Christmas. What does it say? First Christmas as my daddy. That was from my son, not from. I'm boy. sorry. I, I, um, I, I misplaced it. I had two, my son, uh, my older son, who's into all of this and who's traveled with me. We, we traveled to the UK. Uh, in fact, we went to the London whiskey tasting event in London a couple of years ago. Uh, we went up to Scotland. Uh, we saw Tommy Tiernan when he was doing his, his he called it the World Tour of Kerry. Uh, we've been to Scotland a couple of times. Anyway, he got me this beer, which, as you can clearly see, has an alien on it. Uh, and it's, it, the name of the beer is uh, Passion Abduction. Okay. It's got a checkered floor on the bottom there as well. And a but guy he on also, top with, a, with what looks like a kind of what's that kind of like a squid arm yeah well he he also he also gave me a bottle which i was going to fetch which i must have uh archived somewhere it, it the beer was called element 115 oh okay and that's what i was looking for but i yeah. unfortunately i just i don't see it right here so um here's bob my take on bob lazar and i was able to directly question Jeremy Corbell uh, at a conference when he was on stage and I was doing a talk at this conference in, in Laughlin, Nevada. So Jeremy, Jeremy was able to um, clarify for me. My takeaway from Bob Lazar is this, look at everything he predicted that was right. He exposed Area 51 to the world and the government for you know another 10 years said it doesn't exist. Then they finally admitted it. I mean, Think about that. Then he said, well, I worked in this place called S4. And they said, no, you didn't. Well, then he pulled out a paycheck, a pay stub with that on there, Office of Naval you know, Intelligence. Then he said, you know, I worked at Los Alamos. And they said, oh, no, you didn't. 
Well, then they found the phone book with his name in it as an employee at Los Alamos. Then they said, he said, well, the stuff is element 115, I think, and that's what they're powering these spaceships with. And of course, the world shouted him down. And then these, I think, Swiss scientists came up and they uh, were able to make element 115. So come on, man. The, the guy made four on any level outrageous statements. And every single one of them came true. So as far as I'm concerned, man, the guy, is, he's got some street cred with me. I don't care about him getting arrested for having a hooker or, you know, whatever things that other foibles, you know, let he who is without sin cast that first stone. And, and I, I think he, he's got a lot to say. I, I really enjoy, you know, watching him. So yeah, that's, that's, my that's my take on, on Bob Lazar. This element 115 was fascinating. So guys, if you've not seen the documentary, I think it's on Netflix. I watched it a few nights ago. Um, and it is fascinating. The guy, the, the producer has put this together as a documentary filmmaker myself, has done an incredible job of building that the way he's built it. And it's a great film. If you haven't seen it, go and watch it. Let me go back before, before we um, move on. What is your experience with um, the men in black on the golf course? That was, a, I love that story in the book. And, um, and, uh, yeah, what do you think they are? Are they watching you at the moment? Are they people around us? Are they from the future? Are they kind of not human, part human? What is your take on the men in black? But first talk about your experience with them. Great. Let's refresh the audience about uh, who the men in black are. They're supposed to be government operatives in the, from the deep state. And their job is to obfuscate the truth about alien visitation, UFOs, extraterrestrials. And the way they do that is, uh, in some cases, they will discover where the evidence is and they will steal it. Like the famous Rex Heflin of 1965. Rex took four pictures, three of which had a UFO. Guys came, visited his house, said they were from the Navy intelligence office, and the pictures disappeared for 20 years. Um, there's uh, many, many instances in the popular press that say that these people came around, they intimidated witnesses, uh, they smashed windows, they did creepy things. Uh, in, in the um, case of um, the Texas case, where the um, UFOs appeared, uh, and eventually flew over the Bush Ranch, the, the man who saw the UFOs and went on the record was visited by guys who were dressed in men in black garb and they stood outside his house down the path. He had a very long driveway up to his house. And that was well documented. He went on TV and told the world about these guys trying to intimidate him. So there's a long history of these people dressed in dark suits with dark ties and sunglasses that intimidate witnesses, steal the evidence, tried to obfuscate the evidence, put out phony stories. So to bring your listeners back up to my story is there's a golf course that's owned by the base on the base and hole number 10 parallels the campus for the foreign technology division. That building is where Project Blue Book was. Now, Project Blue Book is known to have been a debunking organization. Their job was not to investigate UFOs as much as it was to disinterest the public in the topic. And years later, their chief investigator, Dr. Alan Hynek, told the world that's what his job was, to explain away those things. So I'm on the golf course, and as I'm driving down the fairway to hole 10, and I see the Foreign Technology Division building to my left, I spot a guy who is dressed exactly like a man in black. And it's unusual because it's hot out. We're in May and in Dayton, Ohio, it's hot. I know I got married on the third weekend of May and it was hot and it's been hot. You know, that's hot. I, I know when that, that's gonna trip, it's right around my anniversary. So he's got the hat on, he's got the clothes, he's dressed up and he's, you know, twiddling with his phone. And I know because I know people inside of that building, they're not allowed to have their phones in there. When they come in, they got to drop them into a deposit box. So I engage this guy because I'm like, holy crap, a moly. That's FTD. 
And now there's a man in black literally standing across that parking lot next to the graveyard that, of course, the son said was under the parking lot, but is clearly not under the parking lot. So I engage this guy in a conversation and I basically bring up the topic. I say, you know, from my perspective, you look exactly like a man in black. And I'd love to take your photograph and put that in a book. And he tells me, well, that wouldn't be a good idea because I clearly work for an intelligence agency and it really wouldn't be good to have my face plastered all over whatever website. And I said, but we could make a lot of money if I pay you to put it in my book. And he says, yeah, we don't want to do that either. So I wind up having two men in black experiences with the same guy at the same location. You know, a month later, I'm back on the golf course because, hey, I'm retired. What am I going to do? I engage him in another conversation. He again politely declines, uh, you know, my um, my uh, business proposal. But I got to question him about the hat because hell, it's hot that time of year. And he pulls off the hat to show me that he's bald. That's his point. He wears the hat because he's bald. But when he pulls the hat off, I notice his skin is a very strange olive color. So he was trying to relax me by saying, relax, dude, the hat's because I'm bald. But instead, it excites me because now I see his skin doesn't look normal. And I'm like, oh, you know, you got to like back your way out of this real casually. Thank you for the conversation kind of thing. And then after my book comes out, um, I'm contacted by somebody who gives me a couple of pictures. And I know it's the same guy because I saw him up close like this. And it's wintertime. There's a little snow in the air. And he's leaning into the wind going into that same building. He is dressed in the top coat of the men in black with the men in black hat on, the suit, whatever. And he's got a black briefcase and he's walking into this building. So it is proof positive that he worked in the building and maybe he's taking a fashion risk, but he looks exactly like the man in black. So case closed, what better place I ask you for a man in black to live and work than in an intelligence building that one housed Project Blue Book? It's fascinating. I, I find these things fascinating as well. I've, I've known people that have seen similar things of people dropping. Um, I know a friend of mine w- watched two similar guys walk up on a bridge in London a very well-known bridge in London and stop in the middle and exchange a briefcase and walk off from left to right um, in the middle of, of um, so these things do happen. You just have, you, I think they sometimes want you to see these things. Certain people want to see these things. Was there, um, was there another part of that golf course that was underneath some of the golf course? There was some radioactive dumping or something there or radioactive waste. Yes. There? Yes. Um, this was a separate golf course. Wright Patterson, oh, okay. Wright Patterson has two 18-hole golf courses. The base is divided up into two areas now. It used to be four areas, but there's area A and area B. Uh, in area A is where FTD is and the golf course I mentioned where I had my experience with them. Or area B is um, called Twin Base Golf Course. And the other golf course with the men in black is called uh, Prairie Trace. So on Twin Base, on hole number one, two, three, and hole number four, it's a par three, there were these serpentine mounds. And I'd been on the base since 73, and I think I took up golf in 1977. So since 1977, I was used to seeing these serpentine mounds behind the uh, par. It's about a 180 yard par three. Well, I thought this was some kind of a ode or gesture to all the great courses your way. You know, there's nice little mounds all by the seaside and whatever. Come to find out that there was, you said radioactive, I'll call it 
cancer-causing carcinogenic um, waste that they found there that somebody who ran a project decided to bury and then create these mounds on the top of it because they had to put so much dirt over it. So anyone who hit a ball over that green and went in that area was actually exposed to this deadly material, whatever it was. And the, the Environmental Protection Agency spent three years right there remediating that area. Three years. And my friend, Bill Cumley, who used to be the head pro there, told me that during that time, he spent more time conversing with the EPA than he did with the members of the golf course. <laughs> I do wonder whether these people just, golf course is kind of some place where these men in black secret service types meet because it seems to be a place where you wouldn't go if you were an everyday person you you kind of go there if you've got a bit of time on your hand you you've got a little bit of money and you go there and i wouldn't be surprised if there's a great meeting place on a golf course no one would uh subset it would they would expect you to kind of be meeting on these golf courses because if i was going to do something i'd do it on a golf course they're all relaxed people are having a great time I just think that would be a great place to meet and share information and swap secrets on the golf course. What a great place. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. <laughs> it's brilliant. Well, and before we go, um, what would you, what would you like people to kind of understand about this information, about this work that you do and take from this that, that might kind of um, get them to see the world in a, in a, in a more kind of open-minded light. I think we're getting to the place now where within maybe even within my lifetime but there will be some sort of disclosure i'm not sure if it'll be a real one it could be this project blue beam not blue book blue beam this fake alien invasion thing i think is a is a definitely for me a possibility this could be used in some sort of way of controlling people what would you like people to understand about this sort of work of, of what's out there and, and how they've been kind of shielded themselves from the possibilities of these things yeah let me um comment on that and it was going to lead into a final shameless ad for one of my books absolutely yeah of course um, i discovered a colonel gary k carroll who's the hero of swamp gas my ass he's the pilot that actually intercepted the famous 1966 michigan swamp gas ufo people had uh, seen the ufos in southeastern michigan for weeks congress was starting to investigate it put pressure on them the Air Force came out and said it was nothing but swamp gas. It turns out that Colonel Carroll told me his story. And while I was interviewing him through the months leading up to the release in April of this year, we did not know that the U.S. government was going to come out with that nine-page report that was issued on June 25th, 2021, by the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. And that nine-page report said, UFOs are real, they're possibly a national defense issue, and they're clearly a safety, a flight issue. Now, we did not know, and the world did not know, that this report was going to come out because the announcement wasn't made until December of 2020. And I was interviewing Colonel Carroll by January of 2020, so nearly a year before anyone even knew a report was going to be generated. The point I'm trying to get to is, is that Colonel Carroll held this secret, the fact that he intercepted a UFO, had it on his visual and captured it on his radar system, and it was recorded on his radar a year before. So here's this very brave man, a former, a real American hero, a distinguished flying cross recipient, medals, a wall full of medals, coming out and saying, it's time for people to know about this. And I want people to know my story. I can solve this very famous 55-year-old uh, mystery. And Ray, you're going to tell my story. What I'm hoping is, is that the Colonel Carrolls of the world join up with, there, there is some, some meeting here with that ODNI report that is going to encourage all of those people who sat on their UFO secrets for 50 years before they, they leave this planet to tell their stories. It's important for history to know, you know, not only what they know, but 
to serve as a waypoint for people to come forward and the people who were made fools of or who were made to be, you know, feel ridiculous. I think it's in the best interest that these people come out and tell their stories and I would be happy to hear them. So my email is ITSAUFO at yahoo.com. It spells it's a UFO at yahoo.com and I would love to hear their stories. So just email me, email me and I generally get back to people, you know, wave at them at least within a couple of days. So that's Ooh. what I'd like to happen going forward. That's fantastic. Guys, I will put the email obviously on the video at the link and you'll also have all the links as well when this video goes video goes out. So um do you see before we go, do you see a time when in the not too distant future, maybe a couple hundred years, 150 years where human beings will live on this planet openly with people from another even another not just another planet another galaxy or another time do you see there's a point where that will possibly happen what a fascinating petri dish of life that would be well first of all we have to learn to live with each other and we've done an awfully poor job of that as history shows uh, second of all they're already here and we're already living with them. If you uh, believe the books of people like Dr. David Jacobs, uh, read his book, especially the one uh, Walking Among Us. Uh, it's very fascinating. And he talks about how the hybrids have already been uh, integrated into our society. So it's a step ahead. A lot of people have ignored it, called them a quack, but hey, people call Bob Lazar in Area 51 impossible too and see how that turned out. So I think they're already here. And um, I'm going to have to leave it at that. If I ever decide to write a fourth book, um, you know, because there's only three books to a trilogy, right? <laughs> so we'll, we'll see. I might spill the beans. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, that's fascinating as well. I'll look forward to it. I'll put all the links to the books below. So, guys, um, the books available are Alien Shades of Grey series. So it's Evidence of Extraterrestrials. Visitation to the Wright Patterson Air Force Base, Swamp Gap My Gas My Ass, and Victoria's Secret Truth. And we'll put all the links below to them. Thank you so much, Roman, for your time. Um, it's been absolutely fantastic. Just before we go again, do you want to plug your website and where people can find you? Um, my books are available on Amazon exclusively because they're self-published. Um, they can find me at my last name and then Wix site, W-I-X-S-I-T-E. So it's real common. I'm not a, a regular on all these conferences and that. I'm kind of a, you know, I don't make my living doing this, of course, like most of those people do. And they're doing conferences every week. So I'm kind of low key. And, um, you know, it's a very humble uh, website they will discover. Uh, so uh, look, look me up on Amazon. Please, uh, you know, look you up and, and this episode. This was absolutely wonderful. We absolutely have to do this again. You know, book me and we'll make time. And I'd, I'd love to do this, you know, you know, join you guys. And then we'll talk offline about, you know, some of the other projects you're interested in. Yes, absolutely. Definitely want to work with you. I love your humor about this, but also your kind of excitement about it all because the adventure of it all, as I keep saying during this. So, guys, Hope you enjoyed this glitching the code. I'll put all the links below to find out Raymond's um, and books and find out um, all about him. I'll put some links to some of the videos and the other interviews he's done as well, because we've only really just scratched the surface there of what we could get into. And I'm sure we'll be back on the next few months chatting again. Speak soon. Take care. Goodbye. I'm unapologetically fly. I don't wonder why. That's just my attitude. Yeah. Okay. Hey, that's just my. Uh, 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 come on. Yeah. Yeah. Uh.